0: Uh, having looked now for two or three weeks at the Baptist's distinctive, that is with regards to our views of civil government, uh, or as John reminded us in his lecture, is often called soul liberty. And that has been the focus of our attention in the last... Uh, or three lectures. It is now a reasonable movement from that for us to take up now something of the Baptist distinctives as to church government. Uh, not civil government, which is soul liberty that we talked about. But moving on now to this. Uh, subject, a broader subject of uh of the uh, church government. And uh I would like to pursue that particular distinctive, that particular subject, under uh more or less three heads. Uh first of all, I'll give you some general considerations, and then we will look at some specifics, that is, mechanics of it, and then of course, uh, more, more details. Uh, at, finally, I'd like to deal with maybe some of the details concerning our own position in this congregation. Mm-hmm. Getting very specific and very detailed, that is so to take up under general consideration that is a a broad consideration of the thought of God's governing uh, of his uh, government of the the church, uh, let me take for my, take for my uh, considerations, my thoughts as to general considerations regarding church government. I would take those, and I have, I have not done this in this series of lectures concerning Baptist distinctives. I have not taken a whole lot directly out of our confession of faith. Uh, and I have had my reasons for that. But but on this subject, on this subject of Baptist distinctives and specifically our Baptist Church government, I do want to look at our Baptist confession of faith for our general consideration. I would I would bring to your attention the paragraphs Uh, under chapter 26 which is of course the church specifically beginning verse at uh, paragraph 4 he says the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church and now immediately having said that of course in 1689 (laughs) you understand the context here uh, and the historical context. In having said that alone, we have said a great deal in just declaring that the head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not uh, the Pope. It's not any prelates. It's not any, uh, uh, church appointees. The church doesn't have the authority to appoint a head For the church. Church has a head. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. In whom. By the appointment of the father. All power for the calling. Institution. Order. Government. Of the church. Is invested. In a supreme and solemn manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalted himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. And as you well know, uh, there's a great deal of controversy present, that is in our modern times, whether or not that kind of statement ought to have been made or ought to have been included in our confession of faith. But I stand by it. I stand by it. And uh, considering the context and the uh, historical setting, I stand by it. Then it goes on to say, in the execution of this power wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself, Through the ministry of his word and by his spirit. Those that are given unto him by his father. That they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience. Which he prescribed to them in his word. Those thus called he commanded to walk together in particular societies which we call churches, for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requires of them in the world. Now the whole emphasis of this chapter is, is he and him. He is the sole head of the church. The father calls out those that he has given to him. And this paragraph is instructing us with the the, uh, fact that those that the Father gave him, which he will call out to him, those are called, those are commanded to walk together in these corporate societies known as church. You're not just a freelancing believer that can frolic around the world with no commitment to any particular society of believers. That is a notion that became very prominent and prevalent in the 1960s and 1970s. In fact, the trend when I went off to college in 1970-71 was, was to do away with this whole thing of, of formalized church. If you became a believer, you were just a believer. You just floated around among other believers. But our confession and our Baptist distinctive is that if you have been made a believer, if you've been brought to Christ, you are commanded, you have a responsibility to join yourself to a fixed body, a society known as a church in order for mutual edification, Due performance of public worship that he requires. Then number six. The members of this these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking their obedience unto that call of Christ and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord, and one to another by the will of God, in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. Now that paragraph is pregnant, and I don't intend to unfold all of it. I'm just giving you, as I've said, uh, a general observations and oversight of our particular Baptist uh, distinctive. And notice that number, the first, first line of paragraph six presupposes what we have already dealt with as a very, uh, made very strongly the point of Baptist distinctive of a regenerate church membership. Notice how it presupposes that. It says the members of these churches are saints by calling Visibly manifesting and evidencing their obedience under that call of Christ, which means you cannot belong to a Baptist church by way of infant baptism or by way of any other mechanism that you can think of, but by this one, that you visibly evidence this profession by your walking in obedience. Now an infant can't do that. An unregenerate can't do that. And too many churches that call themselves Baptists are very hasty to accept into membership people who have never done that. Have never done that. They've never evidenced. They haven't even had time to give any evidence of their walking with Christ. So this is a Baptist distinction that we require as a part of our, as a foundation really of our membership that they be able to manifest and evidence their, their obedience unto Christ. And then that they do willingly consent to walk together. Each component, every member, consents individually to walk together. Paragraph 6 is a very significant paragraph. And then paragraph 8. A particular church, gathered and completely organized, according to the mind of Christ, consists of, you say, well, what is completely organized? Well, we're fixing to see. Officers and members, the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and there's your formula basically they're appointed by Christ but they're chosen and set apart by the church so called and gathered for particular administration of ordinances the execution of power or or duty which he entrusts them with or calls them to to be continued to the end of the world. Those are bishops, elders, bishops or elders, same, two different words, the same position, bishops or elders and deacons. Then, down to paragraph 12, as all believers are bound to join themselves to particular churches, when and where they have opportunity to do so. So all that are admitted unto the privileges of a church are also under the censures and government thereof according to the rule of Christ. No uh, Paragraph 13, no church members, no church members upon any offense taken by them, having performed their duty required of them towards the persons they are offended at, ought to disturb any church order or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church or administration of any ordinances upon the account of such offense at any of their fellow members But to wait upon Christ in the further proceeding of the church. And so it is that they are, this, these two chapters simply, uh, sorry, paragraphs simply uh, make the point that they are to be under the government of the local church. To which they have voluntarily consented to be in membership with, and that they thereby come under not only the opportunities, the privileges for chapter uh, paragraph twelve, not only the privileges of the church, but also the censures and government of that local church, not other churches, not some. Some itinerant guru who floats around from church to church, uh, exercising some kind of almost papal authority. And those of us who came from the ranks of fundamentalism can certainly identify with what I'm describing. There are, there are some men who rove around and think themselves To be superior. And can indicate. Where things need to be changed. Or where not so. Not so. Baptist distinctive. Is that each and every. Baptist congregation. Is formed and ordered. In such a way. That it is its own. Individual. Entity. Accountable. Only. To Christ. Who is the sole and only head of his church. So those, of course the whole chapter, but those paragraphs in particular uh, give us a, a picture of how we as Baptists see the formation of our churches. Those are some General considerations regarding the matter. Now, further, just to cover this topic of general considerations, I would also read for you from Kroll and, uh, his, uh, paragraph, his chapter on this, uh, in part three of his book, page 175 of the book that I have, uh, Kroll says, experience has shown that human beings cannot live together in a social capacity. I I, I think I would use the word societal capacity. Experience has shown that human beings cannot live together in a societal capacity without government. Because the reality is, and uh, we've seen this, my wife and I have seen this in uh, the ranks of those who are uh, boldly non-denominational. The reality is, whether you have a prescribed, uh, defined government or not, government will develop. It, It is in the human uh, make up that when people come together, operative word there in that first line, they live together. Some or other form of governing is going to take place. Now, having established that as a as a given in sentence one, he says all history proves that a just Watchful and vigorous civil government is always necessary to protect the quiet from the tyranny of the ambitious and the weak from the rapacity of the strong. Uh, Christian churches being composed of persons who are professedly renewed in knowledge and in love must also have government adapted to their circumstances and wants. Their members are enlightened and sanctified, but in part they are exposed to the example of a selfish and wicked world. They therefore need Laws by which to regulate their individual conduct to preserve order to restrain the unruly to define and protect the equal rights of all so that the church may be the home of peace the pattern of propriety the house of God and the gate of heaven besides Churches are always liable to receive unsanctified persons among their numbers,
1: unwittingly, of
0: course, on whom affectionate Christian admonition will be spent in vain. But as their government and laws are founded in persuasion and love, they can, in the execution of their severest penalty, only return the transgressor to the world. Once he came. Now I want to back up in this paragraph and let's slow down and look at a couple of things. One thing he says they need laws. I want to be very careful there. He has a footnote. He has a footnote. He says the footnote from Richard Hooker says this. Of law there can be no less acknowledge, acknowledged than that her seat is the bosom of God, her voice, the harmony of the world. All things in heaven and earth do her homage, the very least as feeling her care and the greatest as not exempted from her power, both angels and men and creatures of what condition soever, though each in a different sort and manner, yet all with uniform consent, admiring her, this is law he's talking about, admiring law as the mother of their peace and joy. Now, I just want to make two comments about that footnote and about Crawl's uh, use of the word law here, that churches, like societies, need laws. One comment is, we understand, we believe as Baptists, that the only laws, we believe in law, we believe in having laws. But the laws are the laws of God, not of man. I cannot write laws for this church. A board of deacons cannot write laws for this church. A board of advisory pastors cannot write laws for this church. The only laws this church knows or should know is the law of God. So yes, we believe that churches should be governed by law. But that's the law of God we're talking about, not the laws of men. But then the second thing I would say on the other end of the scale is that we are living in an age of unprecedented lawlessness, where every man is a law unto himself. And that is no law at all. That does not meet the description or expectations either of a crawl or of our Baptist confession of faith. We are not a lawless people. We believe in the law. We believe in the law of God. And we want to see that exercised within our ranks as Baptists. That is a Baptist distinctive. We believe in the law of God and we want to be subject to it. Because of that, we have a government, to use his phraseology in the last sentence of that paragraph, We have a government of laws. (laughs) As Baptists, we have a government of laws. And that government directs us. It protects the innocent. And it rebukes the transgressor. The two functions of the law. It's a big subject. And uh, you may or may not have any questions in your mind on it. But uh, I just wanted to introduce, introduce the fact to you, we are not a lawless people. Of course, over the time of history, John can give you examples. We have been looked on as lawless because we did not submit to the civil powers that be. But we are not a lawless people. It is a Baptist distinctive that we have a government and that that government is a government of law. But that law is the law of God. And each individual congregation, each covenanted body is accountable to their head, the head of the church for their laws and how they execute them. All right? This is the Baptist distinctive. Now, I'm sure that opens probably a can of worms (laughs) for some. I hope not among us. But would anybody like to add or expand on what I've said on this matter of law and government?
1: Would not like to say
0: no, he would not like saying. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Let us hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Where, to <begin? laughs> Where to begin? Where to begin? <laughs> <laughs> well, I
1: think it is would helpful at least to say that in that context that there is a distinction to be drawn between a government of laws and a government of men. Yeah. And that is what our Baptist four do. At least in part, I think we're, we're attempting to express in those of the paragraphs of chapter 26 uh, that, that you quoted, because as noted in the lecture last week, the church has spent more than millennia under a government of man.
0: Yep. To Christianity. Right.
1: right. And man, made men made law mm-hmm. at their women caprice. Mm-hmm. And that's how it operated uh, for so long time. And when Baptist became more vocal and said, No, we have one law giver, and that is Christ. It is not, it is not a Pope, it is not a bishop, it is not a king. It is not even a pastor. It is Christ. Right, exactly. Uh, that was radical and revolutionary and still is in some ways. I suppose uh, even in our day and in our culture uh, where we have professed at least since the 1700s to be a nation of laws, uh, although the Our experience is increasingly
0: not so. Right. So there
1: is that distinction to be drawn between a government of
0: laws and a government of men. Yeah, Yeah, that's a very good distinction, precisely. Government of laws versus a government of men. Now, it has to be said, and we don't want to minimize this. I don't want to, as Baptists, that's another distinctive. We're not afraid of. Honest inquiry. I'm not afraid of honest controversy, disagreement. It has to be said that it is not always easy, nor is it always successful, when a body forms into a church. It is not always easy or even successful that we all can fully agree and conclude what those laws of the scripture are. We can be in full agreement that the scripture is the source of our laws but we may not always fully agree what exactly those are. Some of the details of that may be uh, left to be hammered out among the brethren of a given congregation. Does that make sense? We, we don't dictate for others what is the law of God. But even among ourselves, we have to, we have to work together to come to agreement, consensus as to what we believe is the law. Of of God. What are the laws of God for us as a congregation? That's where we get into this final category that I said we try to look at specifics for this congregation. Okay, so, but, but even, but in the, even in that, we're not trying to form, let men form the laws. We're just trying to have men come to a consensus as to what God's law is. And as I say, that's not always, that's not always a smooth road. That's not always, and it takes a spirit of, of mutual love and bonding to, to hammer those things out. We have found at the forming, formation of this church and throughout the history of it, we have found that we have not always had complete unanimity on very specific points. But we work together as a body to reconcile those things and agree together as a body how the body should go forward, at least with the understanding and light that we have at at that moment. And that's how a church ought to work these things through. But yes, the, the distinction between Laws of man and laws of God is a, is a valid distinction and the one that's been made by Crawley and needs to be made. All right, Crawley goes forward and I do want to just do a, go a little bit further and read. He says, As the principles, as the principles on which churches should be constituted have been exhibited, along with the doctrines, which he's covered in other chapters, and we have covered, which they are required to believe and teach, the remaining point of inquiry, in order to complete the view of the whole subject, is what form of government? He said, we've we've already exhibited how a church should, what it should be constituted of, a regenerate membership. We've discussed the doctrines on which it's founded. Now he says there remains only this subject as to what form of church government or course of church order. Policy and action grows out of these principles of church constitution and our system of doctrine. For it must be obvious to every attentive reader of the New Testament, now this is important, that it contains no code of enactments, specific statutes or canons for the exact ordering of Christian churches like those that were given to the Jewish commonwealth. To give you a, an illustration, uh, the Jew didn't have to call a conference and hold let, do lectures and then hold a debate to determine whether or not a Hebrew should plow with an ox and an ass together. They didn't need to inquire. They didn't need to study into it, debate it, because the law laid it out. What Crowley saying is, when we look in the New Testament, we realize quickly that every minutiae to do with the church life is not so detailed laid out. It isn't. There are no, there's no book of church order passed down for specific details in the Forms of church government. By the way, why is that, do you think? I'm sure you've contemplated that subject. Why is it that the Lord did not hammer out more specifics? You know, some churches don't believe that a musical instrument should be used at all. Our primitive Baptist brethren, the old order primitives, they don't believe that. Some churches don't believe that you should have electricity. Others don't believe that you should have a choir. There are all these details. Now I'm talking about Baptist churches. I'm not talking about other denominations. There are all these details. Have you ever asked the question, why didn't the Lord just lay this out for us? Why is that? Well, I don't claim to know all of the answer to that. I have contemplated the question over the years. One thing I'm very clear is an answer to it, is that the church of the living God was meant to be to all the nations and all the peoples of all the earth. And there would be such vast differences of lifestyle and culture That any one rule book. One size would not fit on. One rule book would not fit. Every culture everywhere. That the gospel is meant to be sent. There had to be. Place for adaptation. Of the gospel laws. To a given body. There had to be. Latitude for that. And so many of the specifics we would all wish there were a book, there isn't. And that's partly, not the full answer, but that's partly because the Lord expects us to hammer out his laws for a given congregation in a given context and arrive at what is honors Christ best in that place. And, uh, Crawley's simply making the statement. It must be obvious, he says, to every attentive reader of the New Testament that it contains no code of enactments. Okay? It makes no definite form of church government essential to the salvation of its members. Personal salvation is connected with personal holiness. And there can be no surer mark of an apostate and corrupt church than the setting up of exclusive high church claims to efficacious grace only in connection with its own ecclesiastical arrangements, and the performance of its own ministry. Now, he's simply saying, if you want to see apostasy quickly, just look at any church that claims to itself that it has the only church form that has efficacious grace. In other words, you won't be saved outside That church. (laughs) Crawley says this is surely apostate and corrupt church. You must be in agreement with their ecclesiastical arrangements. Or else you cannot be saved. There was a... I don't know if I can lay my hand on it quickly... But there was a comment, I I actually wrote it in my Bible, not so much that I necessarily agreed with it, but it was just such a profound statement that it it stunned me and I, I wrote it down. It was John Calvin, John Calvin somewhere made the statement concerning the church that, uh, and I, I can't find it readily, but I, I'll try to find it if you'd like to get the quote. It, it made the statement that that, uh, that there is no salvation talking about the church. The church, he said, there is no salvation unless you suck from the breasts of this mother. What <laughs> the mother church? <laughs> uh, that's pretty, wow, that's pretty bold. Cool. Uh, I suppose that's what Calvin believed. That's what he wrote. And I wrote it down. But it's not true. We don't believe as Baptists. It is not a Baptist doctrine that we believe that there is only our church form of church government that is guarantees your salvation. We don't believe that. He goes on and he says, that, and by the way, the fundamentalists have been guilty of that. I don't want to just pick on the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, there are fundamentalist churches that if you don't come in and, and cross every T, dot every I, and wear the right clothes and, and get the right haircut and say the right words, if you, if you don't do it their way, you're not going to be saved according to them. And uh, that's what Crawley is saying. We don't. We don't hold that. Carly says that form of church government which most effectually. Now listen to his list. The form of church government, and at the very end of this long list, he says is undoubtedly the best. Okay, what is the best church uh, form of church government? That form of church government which most effectually guards purity of life, Christian liberty, private judgment, sound doctrine, and peace among the brethren and among the churches. That which best promotes holy zeal, activity, self-denial, and love while it closely and scrupulously conformed to the precepts and examples recorded in Scripture, and perpetuates the ordinances inviolate as they were originally given, is undoubtedly the best. Now that's a huge prescription he's just laid out. But I think every point of it is sound. I contemplated each of these for a while, for a long while. Whatever our form of church government, it ought to be that it effectually guards the purity of life and promotes holy zeal. It ought to protect Christian liberty as described in our confession and private judgment. That is, there shouldn't be a form of church government where the elders or somebody in the church has the authority to come into your home and change The order of your home, provided it is not a matter uh, of of violation of scripture. If your home is not violation of scripture, then the church has no business uh, dictating in your private judgments. That's your private judgment. And then sound doctrine. Our form of church government ought to promote sound doctrine. But then it ought to also promote peace among the brethren. The church order itself ought to promote peace among the brethren, not discord. It ought to promote activity. It ought to promote self-denial. And then it ought to conform to precepts and examples that are in the scripture. Now that's a tall order. That's a tall order. And we must say quickly that no church perfectly meets that. We don't perfectly meet that. We, a church, like, like individuals that are, make it up, we fail at times. We simply fail. We, we we fall down on one or more of these things as a body, and we ought to be constantly mindful and careful and vigilant about it. So these are specifics some general generals and specifics of Baptist Church order. Baptist church government. And just the notion as Baptists that we believe in a church government, that's important. We hold to that. All right, we'll stop there today. Any questions or comments further?
1: All right. So, why? So why then brother, the wrong that we that's how you break as to the order of the local body.
0: Because as the local body it has the mind of Christ. Because as the local body it has the mind of Christ. Okay? Yeah, that's good. That should silence all the gainsayers.
1: I'm sorry, I have to say that we are, we're not dispensationalists, but we are in a different ethic, history of the church. Yeah. And it is to be distinguished by a special dispensation of the
0: Holy Spirit. Yes. Yes. As such, the Lord
1: guides his people by the work of his Holy Spirit mm-hmm. to illuminate the principles of scripture, yeah. less than generate reams of code and ordinances. Right. Demonstrates his ability to guide his sheep, lead them into all truth. Doing that, demonstrating the ability to do that by separating himself, his bodies, and guiding the righteousness. But back to the point you made earlier that uh, one of the verses that came to my mind, there are a few really that demonstrate what Paul was saying. We are the bodies. of law We're not the little. um, We're not the anarchists, and we're not that. Even though we do throw off hope, and the scriptures are complete terms of government. Uh, One of our favorites, "Let everything be done decently in order." That word "order" is a word of government. Yes. But what is to God at all kind of? He said, "Is is this new generation finishing out the book of Galatians, God forbid that I should glory save the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By Him the world was crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision, neither circumcision, availeth in vain, nor uncircumcision. Ecclesiastical forms features." And right avail right. nothing but a new creature. And then he uses this governmental term return he says, And as many as walk according to this rule, yeah. peace be on them, and mercy on you, the
0: individual God. This is the law that governs our promise of Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right. So to further answer further answers to the question I put, why isn't there a more detailed book of rules for the New Testament Church? John has added that as a body in the New Testament we have the mind of Christ and therefore are responsible to know it. And then Luke has further enhanced that by saying we also have, in in the order to do that, we have share we say simply a special dispensation of the Holy Spirit uh, unknown to previous uh, periods epochs of church history uh, Old Testament epochs we we have this this effusion of the Holy Spirit to enable us to have to know the mind of Christ and therefore we don't have need of a specific reams as Luke said reams of paper of rules and ordinances uh, outside the two ordinances of the church so these are further thoughts on that question why don't we have of course if we did have if we had perfect if we had a detailed book we would have more unity with other congregations right Because we could all just agree on the book and then that would answer all of our questions. But we don't have that. And so each congregation is responsible to hammer out for for themselves the mind of Christ by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And that is an individual congregational duty. And that is a Baptist distinction. That is very much a Baptist distinctive.
1: And thus, the indissoluble necessity of there being a regenerate church membership. Yes. The two are absolutely preeminently, critically connected. If, If the first does not occur, the
0: second cannot. Exactly. Exactly. That's why in my, in the series of doing this, in, in the, uh, planning of this, this series, we started with the sole authority of the scriptures. Then we moved quickly to the requirement of a regenerate church membership. Because those things have to be in place in order for any of these other things to work. Very critical
1: but it also traces that, and, and from a practical standpoint, that code book would be never in Yeah. Because there would always be one more circumstance to be added to the code book. Yeah,
0: yes, yes. There so would, yeah. It
1: would be impossible for, for that to actually...
0: Yeah, it could not have been practice. exhaustive at any particular point in history.
1: Before, ...for that to occur in any anyway. but it resolves itself into... The Lord's own statement. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. That's it. There is no more authority to be dispensed. That's it. Period. That is it. And if He has all authority, then He will make the laws for His church. <laughs> I, I the, the, the statement from that dear brother I've never met, Brother Ray Grant, in that. that Lonesome message in a lonesome little place in Ireland took me years ago, still echoes
0: in my head. His is all authority, and ours is all responsibility. That's right. That's right. But now, I, I thought I've entertained a number of times in this series, uh, is, uh, the, the question just pops in my mind. Why don't every church do this? Why don't, why doesn't every Baptist church do all Why don't they try Well, in the first place, we know the answer. Many of them are 50% or more unregenerate congregation. But aside from that, even for the true believers, this is work. This is work. You you can't take a nonchalant, complacent attitude about your Christianity and, and hammer these things out. This is work. This is what we do. We apply ourselves the study of the scriptures. And we're serious about that. And we and we give ourselves to that. And effort is exerted and we are willing to do the work to work to hammer these things out. Most modern believers in quasi-Christian Baptist churches, they they, they can't be bothered. They can't be bothered. You're just not going to be bothered with all that. It's like, no, no, we just all love Jesus. Let's just love Jesus. And they're not going to be bothered with the work required to hammer these things out. And it's pure spiritual laziness because they don't have a heart for it. And truth is not important to them as it ought to be.